This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. On today's episode of the Enemy Within podcast, we talk about Tom Nairn, who died on January 21st of this year. Nairn was arguably the most important social theorist Scotland has ever produced. He predicted the constitutional crisis of Britain long before it was fashionable. He theorised nationalism and was one of the founders of the discipline of nationalism studies within the social sciences. And most of all, he was a beautiful, provocative writer and thinker. This is the first of two episodes where James and I are joined by economist, former member of parliament and contra-editorial board member, George Caravan. Over these two episodes, we'll explore Nairn's writing, his influences and his life. We're going to do this fairly chronologically. So on today's episode, we discuss Tom's early career, his relationship with Gordon Brown, his writing on Europe and his involvement in the SLP. Tune in next week for an analysis of the breakup of Britain, the Enchanted Glass, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the first episode of the Enemy Within podcast of 2023. My name's Pete Romand, and I'm joined, as always, by James Foley. And today, we have a very special guest on with us, George Kerzin who is here to chat to us today. We got the very sad news that the great Scottish Marxist Tom Nairn had passed away at the age of 90. And so we thought it was only fitting that today we would talk about Tom, we would talk about his life, his contribution to Scottish politics, to Marxist theory, to theory more generally, and to celebrate the impact he has had on all of us. So that is what today's podcast is going to be about. But first, George, James, how are you both doing? Hi, nice to be on the show. It's great to have you. At last. James, what about you? How have you been doing? Pretty good, Pete. Pretty good. So as I said, on today's podcast, we're going to talk about the life and works of Tom Nairn. James, for, for you and me, we're uh, a little bit younger than Tom uh, and so didn't necessarily know him. But George, I know that you did know Tom and have worked with him on various things throughout the years. How did, how did you first meet Tom and what was he like as a person? I knew Tom then for, using the past tense, I actually found it difficult. I knew him rather than knew him for nearly 50 years, which shows you how old I am. And uh, therefore... His losses hurts me in two ways. The fact that he was a great, provocative political thinker to his dying day. And the fact that I knew him personally in good times and bad times. So he, you know, when you lose a comrade, it's, it's always very sad. But I've known him for half a century, and we, he was just a generation before mine. Uh, I'm a soixante vitale, I'm a 60s generation. But Tom came from the 50s. And when my generation were beginning to get political and theoretical, in Tom, even then, in the late 60s, was the person that we read. It was wonderful to meet him and begin working with him, as I did over the years, in political circumstances and in theoretical um, collaboration. In fact, 
we launched a theoretical journal in Scotland called the Bulletin of Scottish Politics. And I could say that Tom, on a human level, a personal level, was a lovely man. And you can't always say that about your comrades. Um, he had the most wicked sense of humor. And since his face was generally always immobile, you didn't always realize he was pulling your leg or being viciously satirical uh, until 10 minutes later or the next day. He was kind and he, um, his polemic in, in the written page contrasts markedly with how he behaved in person because he was a lovely man, very gentle man, a uh, very thoughtful man. And if you were talking to or debating with him, you know, he didn't cut you off or jump down your throat. He would, you know, he would listen and he would talk and he would contest ideas. Um, so so a genuine, a genuinely lovely man and someone who will much miss that's really interesting you say that because he wasn't always the kindest to everyone in the written word. He was so deeply biting in his one-liners about so many different people. But this is true. But you see, you have to understand, that's, that's, that was a Scottish tradition, which people might know, know about. It's called the flight, you know, when you wrote something very sharp and stinging to provoke a response and to sharpen the argument. And this tradition goes back you know, to 18th century and beyond. And it's not, it's never personal. And uh, we might go on to it, but Tom knew Hamish Henderson uh, and Hugh McDermott. And Henderson and McDermott used to have the most amazing literary sent to. So you think they wanted to murder one another, actually. They were the best of friends over a drive afterwards. So it's a kind of early 20th century political device in Scotland, um, which sadly um, uh, has died out. Tom was never gratuitously vicious about anybody except perhaps uh, Gordon Brown. But Tom, Tom, Tom's invective, if you actually read it carefully, it's always just trying to push an argument and expose a weakness, always done so with brilliant intellectual curiosity and integrity. Interesting that about uh, Gordon Brown. I recall reading his remarks on Gordon Brown, the bard of Britishness and all that sort of stuff. Was there a personal side to any of that? I mean, was there a particular reason he just took exception to Gordon Brown, especially now we're all encouraged in the Scottish left to treat Gordon Brown as something of a secular saint. I'm intrigued uh, as to Tom's relationship with him. Well, you have to go back to the 1970s, early 70s, when Brown was the rector of Edinburgh University. I was also a student there. And he affected at that time to be hugely left-wing. He was a fellow traveler of the far left. And he published a very, very influential book just before Tom produced um, The Breakup of Britain, which we'll talk about. Uh, so Brown produced uh, a thing called The Red Papers, where he got a whole series of Scottish political thinkers and activists to write a series of essays about how to transform Scotland politically. Uh, and Tom was one of... The first things Tom wrote is in this red papers about Scotland and Scottish nationalism. And I think it's one of the pivotal pieces that Tom ever wrote. So at this point in time, early 70s, Brown is being you know, the, the, the champion of, of, of a left-wing vision for an autonomous Scotland. And thereafter, as Brown moved to the right, I mean, galloped to the right, he steadfastly refused to explain why he changed his mind. And, you know, essentially censored everything that he had said and argued with Tom in the early 70s. 
So I think Tom took a bit of you know personal umbrage for that. I mean, he, Tom was you know was prepared to debate. If you shifted your position, that was fine. Um, but I think he just found Brown's apostasy and hypocrisy more than he could stand. Now remember, Brown is a son of the manse, as we say. He is he, he's, his, his father was a Church of Scotland minister, and Tom had a particular hatred of religiosity and Presbyterianism in Scotland. And Tom coined the wonderful phrase that Scotland wouldn't be free, we wouldn't get socialism until the last Church of Scotland minister was strangled in the last copy of the Sunday Post, which is the you know the right-wing rag in Scotland. Um, a wonderful, you know, pithy phrase. And I think that Tom just in the end thought that Brown's hypocrisy was so great that he deserved to be called out for it. And his hypocrisy increased and increased over the years. And it feels like Tom's writing about him grew more and more scathing. Yes, indeed. And remember, Brown's an odd fish because if he suits him, he continues to profess that he has some relationship with him, even if he doesn't. And I think that made him especially uh, uh, angry. So Tom was born in Fife in 1932. And interestingly, he studied at the art school before going on to study a master's in philosophy at Edinburgh University. And then in 1957, he went out to Italy. And I think I'd like to start by talking about the influence Italy had on Tom. Because Perry Anderson cites Nairn as the person that introduced Anderson to Antonio Gramsci. And of course, Perry Anderson is one of the most famous people to write about Gramsci and Gramscianism and to introduce it to the left. And Anderson really credits Nairn with bringing Gramsci to the British left. This is a very early but very significant contribution that Tom makes to the Scottish and British and Anglophone left. I only had the chance to meet Tom a couple of times uh, before he died. And one of the times was um, just when me and Jamie Maxwell were working on editing a selection of Tom's essays for a book that was later published by Lewis. And I remember asking Tom about this, and he told me a great story, which was that he used the experience of, it, of Italy and the Italian communist tradition as a way to insulate him from the Stalinist communist tradition, which he absolutely hated. I remember him telling a story about he got back from Italy and Hamish Henderson was working on some of the first translations of Gramsci into English. And he said that they both lived by the meadows in Edinburgh and they would meet up together and to keep up their Italian, they would walk around the meadows together, speaking in Italian to one another. And then they would go back to Sandy Bell's pub and have a little drink. And Henderson would show him the latest drafts of the translation he was doing and Tom would make some comments on it. And ever since, I, I, I find it very hard to walk around that area of Edinburgh without thinking about... Tom and Hamish Henderson walking around, probably getting some strange looks as they spoke in fluent Italian to one another about Gramsci. Just in case anybody doesn't know, Hamish Henderson, yeah, a great Scottish poet, a communist, uh, a Marxist. He was always a CP fellow traveling. His, his poetic side never let him actually join the, the Communist Party. But Henderson had been in Italy with the, the British Army just at the end of the war and worked with the, with the partisans, and he knew Gramsci's family. Uh, and Henderson brings back some of the texts, the prison notebooks, 
to Scotland, translates them himself, and tries to get them published. And as you say, Pete, he and Tom befriend one another and, and collaborate. And Henderson actually doesn't manage to get Gramsci published in the 50s. And it's only when, when Tom uses his good offices through New Left Review um, that they get Gramsci published. So Gramsci comes to the Anglophone world through Scotland and through Edinburgh. And so when people of my generation were, were becoming militants in the mid-late 60s, we knew about Gramsci. You know, there was the same as that text were, were going around. We were having meetings. Um, Hamish would tell you about Gramsci. So when, when Gramsci suddenly becomes this great kind of icon more held in, in reverence and read, we would think, well, of course, why didn't you know that? And you're right that, that but I think both for, for Henderson and, and, and Tom, they were very influenced by the dissident wing of the Italian CP, which used Gramsci really as a kind of way of, of pushing against the more rigid forms of Stalinism. And when 56 comes along, then 56, the Hungarian uprising, and the CP comes parties across Europe split, uh, and begin the new left. Of course, Tom is, is, is around at that point to become part of that new left, as was Henderson. Henderson splits with the CP. And always remember, Hamish Henderson, within the orbit of the Communist Party, right from the 1930s on, influencing many of the Communist Party intellectuals. He's a Scottish nationalist, supports Scottish independence. So always remember that the, 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 the independence question in Scotland predates the rise of the SNP. There was, a, there was always a very strong wing within the Communist Party in Scotland, influenced through Henderson, who are nationalists, Scottish nationalists, and very influenced by Gramsci. So they creates a, a, a really fascinating cultural milieu in Scotland out of which, of course, the 68 generation like myself come. Um, but you're absolutely correct. It's, there is a physical, personal link. Gramsci, the Gramsci family in particular, um, his brother, and the more liberal wing of the of PCR, through Hamish, through um, Tom, into Scotland, into New Left View, and then into the wider Western uh, uh, left wing. That's absolutely fascinating. That really is. So you mentioned being part of the 68 generation, and 68 is quite defining for Tom as well, because at this point, he has managed to get a few different academic jobs. But in 1968, he ends up teaching at Hornsey College, and there is a large student occupation as part of the wave of student occupations in 68. And Tom is involved in this. He's an outspoken supporter of the student occupation and a critic of the university administration. And this results in him effectively getting blacklisted. He didn't get a major academic job again for decades afterwards and actually lived a life of, uh, let's just say, given his stature in the particularly Scottish but global intellectual scene, he didn't necessarily reap the material benefits of this because he wasn't like a lot of the other New Left, employed at universities, able to teach, able to get a decent wage in, and so on. But despite this, he produces fascinating intellectual works around this time and afterwards. I think it's just after this that he writes what I think is probably his first major engagement with the topic of Scottish nationalism, which is an essay from New Left Review called The Three Dreams of Scottish Nationalism. And going back and reading it now, you can really see the evolution of his thought because he is really quite scathing about Scottish nationalism in this first essay. Uh, very critical, and his tone changes throughout the years. 
what was George, do you think, what were his early engagements with nationalism like? Do you think it comes out of engagements with people like Hamish Anderson, who you said supported Scottish independence? What were the debates at that time about Scottish nationalism? Because as you said, the intellectual interest in it emerges before the movement does in many ways. There were always two streams to the national movement. There, there was a left stream which comes through the Communist Party from the, the, the 30s on, but gets very strong in the 50s. And the Scottish Communist Party had a cultural committee, which was actually just a kind of um, front for, for all the nationalists in the CP. Uh, and, and also remember, the Communist Party was a third of the entire British Communist Party membership. It was, ran a, a very separate operation and uh, had lots of very interesting people who were eventually broke in 56. But then there was also the, the Scottish National Party, which was a very petty bourgeois cultural nationalist organisation, um, flirted with right-wing ideas, and was generally considered to be idiosyncratic and a joke. And that is the, is the form of nationalism that Tom and many people in my generation um, were um, resisting. So if you said Scottish nationalism, you thought about the SNP, which was right-wing and a diversion. You have to read Tom's work, I think, with that in view, with those spectacles on. It's, it's never that he's anti the breakup of the British state. It's that he's anti the SNP. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot. So, and it's around this time as well that... Tom develops such a strong relationship with the New Left Review. And one of the things that the New Left Review, in its early years, one of the debates that is almost definitional, definitional to the journal is the Nairn Anderson thesis. This is one of the really important arguments that's made in the pages of New Left Review in its early years. And this is a thesis developed by Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn about British distinctiveness. James, for any listeners not too familiar with the Nairn Anderson thesis, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about what they said, what it was about? Yeah, I mean, firstly, it's fascinating hearing this uh, biographical detail because I didn't know Tom Nairn. I never met Tom Nairn. And I've only really approached him through the realm of ideas. I don't really know a great deal about his history as an activist and the biographical stuff um, about Hamish Henderson and the influence of the Communist Party and so on. I find that fascinating because it's the bit about Tom Nairn that I'm least familiar with. I guess part of what you see within the structures of the New Left Review, um, initially, of course, it emerges as a challenge to Stalinism, as George um, has highlighted. But I think also Anderson and Nairn are associated with trying to do a second break with what they perceive as an ongoing influence of a type of Britishness, Labourism and kind of Stalinism of the British Road to Socialism variety that's still wrapped up in the thinking of some of the kind of older generation. 
of the new left, people that, you know, you will probably have heard of, such as E.P. Thompson, perhaps Raymond Williams and others as well, is almost trying to bring the spirit of continental revolt to the analysis of Britain, but also the continental rigour that they associate with Gramsci, but also with French structuralism and so on, into the whole approach of analysing the question of Britain. The thesis they come up with in relation to British history, which they use to explain a sort of cultural, economic, political backwardness that they diagnose in Britain, is essentially that the capitalist modernisation revolution happened too early, and thus there was not the full break with the aristocratic background, which became, as time went on, re-embedded in the form of the British state. And of course, many people might recognise elements of this critique in the idea, for instance, that uh, British policy is made on the playing fields of Eton, the ongoing legacy of you know imperialism in British thought and British politics and so on and so forth. And it certainly it was an enormously influential thesis about British backwardness. I'll come on to, to address later on where I think there might be flaws in some of this thesis outlined by Anderson and Nairn. But I think broadly there are three things that they correctly identify about the form of the British state that make it distinctive and important. Firstly, that it's a multinational state, as we know, it encompasses the national identities of Scotland, England, Wales, and sort of Ireland bolted on as well. Hence, Nairn's use of the term Eukania as opposed to Britain at times, to describe the madness of the national identity. So it's a multinational state. It's a post-colonial state, of course, with the grandeur or the, the want of grandeur of having once been a great power, uh, which continues to influence, of course, British policy and British thinking to this day. So it's a post-colonial state. And finally, it was an unconquered state. And thus, you know, it came through two world wars uh, successfully, unlike many of the continental European states, and thus didn't have its ruling class, as it were, decapitated and its state form decapitated and undergoing the rationalisation and modernisation that many European states did in a post-war context. So I think, you know, I think there's uh, a great deal of truth to that critique. I certainly first was introduced to Tom Nairn's ideas through that idea about Britain. And it's very useful to hear the, you know, the biographical and activist background that might be inspiring that as well. But that's a little bit about what the thesis was about. And certainly I think you'll find the influence of it everywhere. Certainly this new left idea of Britain, for instance, suffering from imperial delusions and all these other things that you hear a lot nowadays has clearly been influenced strongly by this understanding. You also, I think, hear a number of bad faith and incorrect critiques of the Anderson Nairn thesis as well, but certainly it's been the most influential, perhaps, account of what Britain is about, even if it does have um, some flaws which we might come on to discuss. Tom and Barry Anderson begin their critique slightly before 68. It's when the revolutionary clouds were still gathering in the in the mid-60s. And what, what Tom in particular, I think, was pushing back against as he tries to apply this Gramscian approach to why is the British state and British capitalism so hegemonic? He's pushing against a complete lack of theoretical approach 
in the Lest in Britain at that time. I lived through it and I, I can assure you this. British left had long suffered from syndicalism. You know, just this, you know, let's have another strike, that solve the problem. And I mean, don't disparage the courage and the struggles that took place through the workers' movement. So, century went on and we kept getting being defeated. And we kept booting in Labour governments that sold out the working class. There was a terrible need to understand what was holding the working class in thrall to capitalism. And why did they keep voting for bloody Labour? And in the 60s, of course, Labour has been re-elected on a huge wave of support and thinking, well, this is socialism now. We're very much caught up in that. But then, you know, within weeks, Labour has sold out viciously, attacking the unions. So Tom and Perry Anderson are, are you know, I think they get the subject matter correct. What is causing, you know, 100-year hegemony of British capitalism? Um, what, what creates this Labourism, uh, which is so enthralled to the capitalist state? And why Harold Wilson, having presented himself as a leftist, turns to the right in weeks of becoming prime minister. And uh, we've missed out the major analysis that Todd was making before he got on the Scottish nationalism in the 70s. In the 60s, Todd was writing endlessly about the Labour Party and Labourism. That was, that was the first component he was trying to understand about uh, capitalist hegemony. And, and he wrote, wrote some brilliant stuff about the Labour Party. And at a time when, you know, everyone was trying to say, go to the Labour Party, it was just, you know, it was individuals betrayed. No, there was something theoretical and structural in the way the Labour Party worked within the ensemble of British capital institutions that had to be deconstructed. And he does that. So he's bringing theory. And remember, Tom is a trained philosopher. Um, he comes from, uh, from Scotland, where there's still a powerful philosophical tradition in universities. Everybody, everybody who did a degree in Scotland in the, in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, had to do a course in philosophy. The other person of Tom's generation, philosopher, is Alistair McIntyre, who becomes a world-famous philosopher. He's on the left along with Tom before he sells out and becomes one of the doyens of, of, of bourgeois philosophy uh, in the 70s and 80s. So Tom is firmly within a philosophical tradition uh, and he's, he's, he's within the Gramscian tradition, to extent. He's, he's set the agenda. What is this thing called liberalism? Why is the working class constantly thrall to Labour, why would we never be able to create a political party to the left of Labour? And I think in terms of the Mayor Anderson thesis, which looking back and I think Tom would have said this, was, you know, it was synthetic, it was, and I personally would always argue with him, that because it was so theoretical, he missed the, the drumbeat of class struggle. And you can look at British history, I mean, the, the 20 years before the First World War was something that was the most massive period of class struggle in Britain, where, where you know, there was massive state repression that destroys, you know, pushes back the workers' movement. It's not just cultural institutions that hold you, it's ultimately, it's ultimately the interplay with the class struggle. And Tom was always light on that because he was desperate to get the theoretical points across. And, you know, I think, I think he, from my generation's point of view, he opened up vistas to discuss. He opened up an agenda to discuss. So if he didn't provide all the answers, well, no one person can. How, do, how would Tom respond to that, George, that he was light on his analysis of the class struggle. He would element. look at he would look at me wryly and change the subject. I think he knew but <laughs> no but no 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 I'm not I, he was not a stupid man he was not blinking. I know for instance he over the years had long talks but he 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 was very disdainful of the British far left, which he thought was trivial and sectarian. I think he felt that what he could do 
was on a theoretical plane. And, you know, when you read it, this is not some American academic, you know, writing for his students and, and for his tenure. Uh, as, you, as you pointed out, Pete, he, 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 he was blacklisted in academia because his, inter his theoretical interventions were always designed to aid the movement. They were never designed simply to make an academic point. And so if, if you disagree with him, you know, you disagree with himself, it's because he was, he was trying to open up a terrain to get away from the, the, the horrendous experience, the limiting experience of syndicalism and the limited response in the British far left after the 60s, which was very sectarian Trotskyism. But one person, one lifetime, I think he, he delivered much more than many of us have done. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that, George. I mean, I guess, like, I came from a sectarian, as it were, Trotskyist background when it came to my first analysis of Tom Dean, um, and I suppose many of us did. Um, and it's gradually over the years that I've come to appreciate his influence in a more positive way. And I guess one of the things that has uh, sort of dawned on me over the years is precisely what you said, is that nationalism is less the animating force of what's inspiring them to write. More often than not, it's the dead hand of laborism and its impact intellectually on the British left that he's critiquing. In many ways, uh, it's a very profound um, and important critique that many people could still do to hear nowadays, even on the younger parts of the left. You do see revival of some of these syndicalist themes and um, an unwillingness to grapple with the political level and the impact of political defeats and so on. And certainly I think he's very acute in his cultural understanding of some of the intellectual deformities of the British left. And one of those deformities and one of his major critiques of British laborism is its inherent British nationalism. And I feel like the concept of British nationalism, we all know about it now. In, in post-Brexit Britain, everyone's talking about British nationalism. But even going back to 2014, when we were having debates about Scottish independence, the idea of introducing the idea that there was another nationalism at work, a British nationalism, seemed somehow like a radical intervention. Now, Tom Nairn has been making this argument for decades. Now, I want to touch on one other huge contribution Nairn makes, which is the debate on Europe. In 1973, for the very first time, New Left Review gives over an entire issue to one author to write a sustained argument, and it is given over to Tom Nairn to write The Left Against Europe. This is often taken as Tom Nairn's most pro-European statement. It's actually one of the last things by Nairn that I ever read. You know, I didn't get, get to it until quite late on in my reading of Nairn. And one of the things I was struck by, because I was looking for his case for Europe, that it's less of a case for Europe and more a critique of the British nationalist orientation of the anti-European British left. And it is really a biting critique of the inherent British nationalism of the Labour Party and of parts of the far left. James, George, have you got anything you'd like to talk about in relation to uh, Nairn's contribution to this debate? My worry about it is that in the post-Brexit moment, he will be remembered as some sort of intellectual precursor to a certain type of liberalism that wants to rejoin the European Union and have a written constitution, basically, and that's all they have to say very much about politics. Um, certainly, I don't take that from his work. 
I'd agree with you, Pete, that I think it's uh, essentially a critique of a certain type of labourism and in many ways an effective critique, certainly of some of the syndicalist delusion and so on that did prevail at the time. Now, is his account here of what is distinctively Britain itself sometimes guilty of what you might call an inverted British um, exceptionalism. I think sometimes here there probably is something of a flaw. I mean, for instance, in his account of monarchism, and I'll come back to Europe in a second, but in his account of monarchism, the distinctive thing about Britishness is the absence of a sort of popular nationalism, an impossibility of popular nationalism taking a British form, which means that we have to have this deformed cultural idea of the monarchy as some sort of, you know, substitute for the passions that nationalism and national mobilization might arouse. Now, in many ways, that's an effective critique. But also, I think it's true to say that in latter decades, popular nationalism of that variety or sovereignism or whatever you want to call was in decline across the European states. And we saw pretty much the routing of popular traditions from the state form everywhere. Part of what Peter Mayer calls the void separating uh, the people from the populace. And in that sense, to use Nairn's characteristics, we are becoming more British in our state society relations over that period. Now, the interesting thing for me is that I think that's very much caused by what Christopher Bickerton calls the shift from being nation states into being member states of the European Union. And Europeanness thus has a role, paradoxically, in making European states more British, not just in the economic sphere or sphere of Anglo-Saxon uh, Anglo-Saxon economics, although Thatcher was, of course, one of the pioneers of the single market, but also in the political form, the sort of disenchantment and the gap between people and politics um, that you see virtually everywhere in this period. So to me, it's interesting to ask the question, and I don't know, Tom, so I don't know what he actually said about this, of how he would have responded to the breakdown of capitalist neoliberalism after 2008, and particularly the breakdown of the European Union as a neoliberal economic model after that. His collaborator from the 60s and uh, 70s, Perry Anderson, of course, recanted on the position that he had held in relation to the European Union, where he was equally enthusiastic back in those times about the European dimension and its impact potentially on British politics. He came to see the European Union as being one of the fundamental enemies, I would suppose, intellectually and in terms of political development. So I'm wondering if Tom, if he might eventually have come to some of those conclusions as well, or whether there was a sharp disagreement on some of these European dimensions. Talking to Tom over the years, he, he was perfectly capable of changing his mind. I mean, you'd be trying to discuss something, he'd written, he'd say, oh, I don't believe that anymore. If the politics changed, the political situation changed, he changed his mind. Because it was not rigid, which is what was fascinating about him. But just to pick up on this, it's interesting to look at the 74, the first EU referendum, common market, as it was then. Because it was shocking at the time when, when Tom came out with this argument that we should not oppose British membership. And his line was, you know, that the old line that Marx took on free trade, that, you know, we're not necessarily not favoured free trade per se, but free trade 
offers a better vantage point ultimately for the workers to organize uh, because it expands the working class and creates working class unity objectively. Whereas if we, we go for protectionism, we side with a, a narrow ruling class interest. So I found that a strong argument at the time, but all of us were ultimately in the camp of on the left, or practically everybody on the left, um, voted no. First time I ever voted in, a, in any British election or British electoral process was to vote no in, in 74 to join the EU. But I was taken by, by where Tom was coming from, because what he's arguing is that one of the unique features then of British nationalism, one of the most powerful nationalisms in the world, is that a cardinal tenant of British nationalism is that it doesn't exist. We are the only people not nationalists. Of course, I, I tell me just make wonderful kind of comments about how everybody knows that, that, that British is English and is English. Um, is, is fundamentally a, a powerful nationalism. So it was always concerned with where it came from, and its critique was that the Labour Party played a strategic, not an ancillary role, a strategic role in wedding the working class ideologically to British nationalism. And therefore, will always be the Labour Party at default that will support um, little England interests rather than the wider interests of the working class. And so, to, and what I appreciate is where Tom is coming from. I felt that. He sometimes, in trying to construct the theoretical model, again, misses out some of the important elements in the practice of class struggle in, in, in British history. This argument that there hadn't been a populist break anywhere. Um, but, you know, the, the, the jingoism around the Boer War, the jingoism around um, the First World War, if you remember that 40% of the male working class could not vote in 1914, you had a million of them sign up to go and die in the trenches that the constant mobilization of British nationalism around imperial wars was a powerful, powerful force. So I think Tom overdoes it slightly by saying, well, you know, there, there was an absence of, of, of a populist mobilization. It didn't take a, a, you know, a party form, it certainly took a, a militarized form. But I think his comment, I'll just his comments on, on the 74 first referendum on Europe, I think I think it was it was a brave argument to make, and he got a lot of stick for it, you know, because the entire life was anti-joining the, the common market. And it was a much more sophisticated argument that he was putting forward. Ultimately, I think he was wrong. Ultimately, I think the, 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 the strengthening of a supernatural national entity was a very powerful component in maintaining uh, and, and growing the big multinational companies who stand behind the, the shift towards neoliberalism later in the seventies. But again, I put it again, Tom, Tom was always willing to push the agenda and make people think outside the box. And that's why we should remember him. I think there is also something in this that Tom does get right in the overall analysis, which is not just the critique of Labourism and Britishness and so on, but actually one of his important insights into the whole theory of nationalism. Because it's also around this time he develops his account of what distinguishes Scottish nationalism as a neo-nationalism, as he defines it, insofar as it's a type of national movement and mobilisation which emerges within the conditions of the emerging globalisation defined by those free financial flows, those bigger trading spaces, by the multinational corporations and so on. Now, we might question the value judgment sometimes that he assigns to that. I don't think he would have seen it positive as such. I think, you know, George is right to suggest it is a sort of 
quite Marxist tradition of associating a modernizing um, impact to free trade, what I think he understands, um, which few people did then and I think has been uh, subsequently very influential, is that there's not necessarily a conflict between nationalism and the emerging globalization. As you get these bigger trading spaces and so on, it might actually create more and more incentives for some of the traditional things that define nationalism in Nairn's interpretation, which is the sort of provincial bourgeoisie to mobilize the masses in order to try and gain some competitive advantages. As of course you kind of see with um, the sort of Irish nationalist model of the Celtic tiger, but also with many of these minority national movements that emerge after the 1970s, not, of course, just in Scotland, Catalonia, Basque Country, to a lesser extent, Wales, and so on and so forth. So I think he understood here, in and amongst the fact that I maybe disagree with him on the politics of it, something that is quite profound theoretically and which would go on to shape the subsequent history of nationalism as a serious topic of academic study, which really, I suppose, begins with Nairn, Helenus Gellner and a few others in this period. So very much there is um, an intellectual importance to some of the points he's making here, even if, you know, we might query some of the political judgment.